Death by Incarceration presents, in association with Crawl Space Media, Injustice, a new wrongful conviction podcast with a focus on advocacy. Emmanuel Rios and Angel Rodriguez are each serving life sentences for the 1987 murder of Sean Nelson, despite the existence of evidence that could have cleared them had it not been withheld at their trial. Now that our production team has obtained that previously lost evidence, will it be enough to write an injustice of more than 30 years? It's crazy because there's a confession. (laughs) There's a confession. He did confess. It's recorded. It's on a tape. Injustice. So... How did Emmanuel Rios and Angel Rodriguez, with zero physical evidence tying them to the crime, not a single eyewitness, no forensic analysis, hell, not really even any circumstantial evidence, get convicted of murder and sent to prison? Well, let's see. There's the theatrics of an overzealous assistant district attorney who ran roughshod over an outmatched defense team. There's the crooked cops who, at a minimum, coerced a young woman to alter her timeline of events on the night of the murder so that it more closely aligned with the department's case. Uh, The mysterious disappearance of the single best piece of evidence that could have cleared them. And despite all of this, what really sent June and Spanky away from their families for the past 30-plus years was the shaky-ass testimony of the one person who had something to gain. Romance MacArthur. We made it to episode six. Uh, I'm Spencer Daniels, and with me, as always, Lisa Spees. Hello, Lisa. Hello. As we close out this series, our initial intent was to combine the information from the, the previous episode regarding the letters and this one about Romance's story and the information that he provided in his statements and testimonies. And what we found is that there was a lot more there. Last time, we had started to talk about our hope that this case can end up in front of a judge soon. And that's the bare minimum what we're looking for. But we didn't really talk about the work. And we've said from the start our focus is advocacy, just wanting to be the voice for these guys who may not have the same opportunity to do it for themselves. Lisa, first of all, you know I came into this thing wide-eyed. How frustrating is it to do this every day? Like I, I know when it pays off, it pays off big. And I've seen your enthusiasm when you've helped free someone because you form relationships with people that you know are innocent. But there's still only so much you can do. So how do you let that not get to you? You celebrate all of the little wins along the way. When I am able to secure a professional resource pro bono for my client, that's huge for me. And it's not freeing them, but it's it's one more piece of the puzzle that has to happen before somebody comes home. So you have to you have to celebrate all those little things that happen along the way. Otherwise, you would become so depressed or jaded down thinking this is never going to happen that you wouldn't want to keep going. This past week, one of my uh, friends and clients, and I consider him family in Tennessee, was exonerated. It was unexpected. It came at a time we didn't expect it to come, and it was thrilling. It's it's joy personified when those moments happen, and it allows you to re-up your energy and your motivation and your discipline in doing the work every day to get to that place again. 
So you, you just have to keep after it and celebrate the little things and realize that you're not working in a fair system. If you come into it, you know, you and I have talked about this. I thought I was, when I first came in on a first case, I was going to speak to a person and explain the whole situation for a couple of hours and that that person would come home. And I was just as naive, maybe more naive than you were. And you realize quickly that's not how it goes. If you want to do the work, you adapt and you figure out new ways to to pursue things and new paths forward. And, and you just keep working at it until until they come home. Yeah, I'm looking forward to um, to being able to celebrate a little win on this case. So, all right, before we get into the letters, let's talk about how we got here, the Romance MacArthur version. So what, if anything, do you want to say about Romance MacArthur before we dive into this? I just want our listeners to hear and to pay attention to the way romance seems to be a chameleon to each situation. Depending on who he's talking to, he wants to be perceived as helpful. He agreed uh, when June asked him to go speak to Peruto. When he went in to speak to Peruto, he gave him just enough information to not totally incriminate himself initially. And then when that didn't pan out, he gives a little bit more information. I think he probably did the same thing with Roger King. He just seems to insert himself, figure out what that person wants, and give it to them in the smallest amount of information possible. And he seems to do that over and over and over again in this, in, from what we know with this case anyway. Yeah, he, I mean, he's, he's a smart guy. He, he does give them just, just enough to maintain interest. The romance story starts four years prior to the death of Sean Nelson. And we don't have any information about his life prior to that. But he had met June at a swimming pool when he was 14. And then at 15 years old, he comes out of juvenile hall. And with nowhere else to go, he heads down to 8th and Butler. That's where his friend June is. June says, come get this money. And so they start working together. This is uh, 1985-ish. A romance testified to a grand jury about his participation in the drug trade at 8th and Butler. First as a lower-level street dealer, and then working his way up through the ranks, earning the trust of whoever was in charge. At the time, it was June, Spanky, and Spanky's uncle. We haven't discussed Tito, but he was the older statesman of the block. He would later, in 1986, basically hand the block down to Spanky like some sort of family heirloom or whatever, because I guess that's a thing you could do. So Romance does this for a while until he gets a promotion up to middle management of a thriving criminal enterprise. And, and I'm sorry, but sidebar, Your Honor. He talks a lot about his role in the Blue Tape Gang, which I still marvel at. I mean, I know drug deal. I have known, I knew, I knew drug dealers, and they were all, for the most part, what you would consider small-time hustlers. And maybe that's why I, they never marked drugs with identifying tape. It's just evidence that leads cops back to you. In a small-town environment, maybe that's all they knew. Philly is different. But MacArthur, he talks about the approximately 100 employees, the the 10 people at the top all in charge of profits, and they're working shifts like from 2 to 6 or 6 to 12 or, or whatever. Blue Tape Warriors 
We're getting shirts and sweatshirts and gold chains with blue tape warriors on them. I mean, they're no different than a high school cheerleading squad, except they sold crack instead of candy bars. And Lisa, you and I talked about this. It is odd to me, but if you think about it, it's 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 branding. It's branding genius, right? Yeah, I mean, I think this was a very different time in the '80s where this drugs were everywhere, and especially in big cities like Philadelphia, and they wanted to distinguish themselves from other people selling the same sort of product. In terms of business, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, unfortunately, this was just an illegal business. So do we know, was the, was the blue tape first? Because I, I know we, we talked about the, the gray tape gang. That's, that's come up. You had mentioned green tape. Was blue tape the, the first ones to do it? Do we know that? My understanding is the blue tape was the first one to do it. And then there were off shoots of that. It's interesting to me that you know, like Walgreens and CVS that are right across the street from each other. The blue tape was this block and the green tape might be two blocks down. But, you know, if it if if a customer liked the product of blue tape, they might want to come back to blue tape and they might not want to mess with green tape. So, you know, it, it's all it, it, if it wasn't serious, it'd be funny. But, you know, it's kind of funny the way that this all worked at the time. I think it just shows the difference in our culture now. Yeah. You know. Yeah, it's McDonald's and Burger King. Exactly. All right, so when we're talking about the organization of Blue Tape Gang, it sounds to me like like June and Spanky ran a, a pretty tight ship, and Romance was sort of the outlier, kind of a loose cannon. Why would they even entertain the idea of a murder to put the whole operation in jeopardy? Well, I don't think that it makes a lot of sense when you look at the way June and Spanky ran the Blue Tape Gang. We know that romance was an outlier based on the players that we know that were involved. They clearly trusted him. Romance had endeared himself to June when June was hurt and injured and pushing him around in the wheelchair. They were friends. He told him at one point he wanted to take care of him. And I think that they had, maybe it was an emotional decision of wanting to keep him involved. Maybe he was one of the, one of the outliers that had it more together or one of the, you know, people that are kind of off that had it more together than the others that were involved, but they clearly trusted him or they wouldn't have had him on a train, you know, transporting money and drugs back and forth. And it was a lot of money and drugs that they were transporting at the time, they wouldn't have trusted him to do that if they really thought he was just crazy. Right. All right, well, so you, you brought it up, so let's talk about... He, he testified to his part in trafficking as a courier transporting kilos of cocaine between New York and Philadelphia. So he rode the Amtrak back and forth several times a week. And at the height between uh, November 1987 and September 1988... He moved, this is romance, moved somewhere in the neighborhood of 350 kilos of cocaine in a duffel bag. For context, keeping in mind that that this figure is from 1989 during the trial, but at somewhere between 14,000 and 18,000 per kilo, that's in the neighborhood of five to six million dollars worth of dope on the streets. He says that the only reason he quit being a courier was because in 1988, he was arrested. He spent 72 days in jail after being bailed out. 
for $125,000 and picked up by June. This, of course, is the, the murder of Michael Gore. But because of the murder charge, he was too hot, and so he couldn't make those trips any longer. So, so this is the point where he admits to his part in the two murders, Michael Gore and Sean Nelson. He first mentions June in connection with them both, and Spanky in connection with just Sean. He tells King this story about a meeting between himself, June, and Spanky, about what to do about Sean selling his own material on their corner and what needs to be done. He also says that Sean was just the first of many others that were set to have the same fate, but that Sean would be hit. Now, I don't know if some or all of this is true. I, I suspect there's a lot of fabrication simply to further his narrative and continue to paint June and Spanky as the scary bad men. But the main takeaway from his testimony is the van story. And we don't need to rehash that again. If you've been following along, I think we've sufficiently covered it. And Romance's testimony is a mess. And, and maybe he was confused, but he had a really hard time even saying, you know, what direction Sean was allegedly facing when he was shot. Probably because he wasn't facing any direction because he made the whole thing up. But there's this back and forth between Mr. Lynn, who's the defense attorney, that takes up an uncomfortable number of transcript pages where he's just trying to get him to say where the body was in relation to the van. At first, it sounds like he's talking about side doors and then back doors, and his questions are like, was his head facing the pavement? Was his face down towards the pavement? Was his face pointing towards the back of the van? And Romance says it was facing towards the trees. Okay, well, where were the trees in respect to the van? Uh, this way, facing this way. I mean, it's, it's like a courtroom Abbott and Costello routine or something. Now, there's, there's one section that stands out that really paints a picture that these guys were incredibly tight. The question is a little meandering, but they're talking, I guess, about when they first met. And this is right after June's accident that led to the nickname Cripple June. Romance says that when June first came home, he was in a wheelchair. Romance was always pushing him around, taking care of anything he needed. June had always told him that once he got out of the chair and he got better, he was going to take care of romance. Not just for wheeling him around, but because he was a good guy. He was a good guy to June. So romance apparently has, has two modes. He'll take care of you, like in the mobster sense, like Sean Nelson and Michael Gore, or he'll take care of you because he's your friend, and, and that's what friends do. And then he'll get you sent to prison for 30 fucking years. Lisa, I'm starting to think that it might not pay to be a friend of Romance MacArthur. Of course, after this, I don't think I have anything to worry about. Um, so, talking about Roger King being slimy is one thing, but talking shit about a killer who's out there walking around on the street is, is another altogether. And I know you're not, as, you're not as reckless as I am when it comes to talking shit, but should I be worried about retribution from Romance MacArthur? I think you're pretty safe from retribution at this point. He spent a lot of time in prison. He clearly doesn't want to be involved. You know, you don't live in the same state. I'd say you're safe. All right, good. Let's talk about the ever-changing stories and statements of Romance MacArthur. Starting with the initial statement to police two days after Sean's death, uh, he had a meeting in Peruto's office, and he spoke with and gave statements to police two more times. 
There's the grand jury testimony, his pretrial testimony, and then the trial itself. That is seven distinct times that he spoke. He basically gave seven different stories. Where should we begin on all of Romance's statements and testimonies? Where do you want to start? So basically, I'll just go through generally what he said his involvement was from each statement as he went on. There was the initial statement on September 9th where Romance tells the police that he had no involvement or no knowledge of anything that went on. Police ask him some pretty specific questions that they must have gotten information from other witnesses. And Romance denies meeting Sean on Sunday night at about 9 or 10 p.m. He denies having something big going on with Sean. As we heard before, Sean had said they had some big deal going back and forth, but Sean wouldn't give specific details. Romance denies all of that. He denies that Sean was even ever in his car on Sunday. And he tells police that he had no plans to meet him. So basically contradicting most of the witness statements that we talked about in a prior episode. I actually, I mean, se- several of these have been discussed at different times. You know, we can talk about all the witnesses, but the one thing that stands out to me, he says he learned about Sean's murder from Sean's sisters, that they came by right. his house Monday. That contradicts what Brooke told us, is that a friend of theirs had come by and told him, and that's when he got physically sick to his stomach. So that's different as well. I mean, obviously, if Romance doesn't want to tell that whole story or have that story followed up on about the friend visiting the house, then that's how he learned. I, I guess, you know, it's possible Renee and Debbie did come by the house on Monday, and that's what he's using instead of this other story about about the friend. So both things could be true, I suppose. He just uses what works for him better in that situation. So the second statement is the taped confession with Peruto that we've talked a lot about. And in this statement, he basically says that he, well, he doesn't basically, he says that he committed the murder, but that it was an accident. They were driving in the car. He took the gun out and accidentally shot Sean, never mentioning anything about Spanky at all. And he basically says a number of times he wasn't threatened or coerced into going to Peruto's office that he did it of his own free will. And that was in, I want to say, October of 1987. The next two statements are from August of 1989. In the first statement, August 14th, is the first time that Angel is mentioned at all. And this is where he indicates that June and Spanky wanted Sean Nelson dead and that they had further discussed the murder of, I think, two or three other individuals that they wanted to hit after Sean's murder. But Romance explains that because of the way the investigation went after Sean's murder, that June told him to forget it. I want to know how much truth there is to this. Why is he bringing these other people into it? If, If this conversation never happened, if June Spanky and Romance never had the conversation about whether or not Sean was was going to get killed. Who are these other people and what's their connection and you know where did this come from? I think a lot of times I've seen in cases where people will create an elaborate story in their mind. They think that they're building this whole thing to shore up the entire story. Well, it wasn't going to be just Sean. It was going to be Steve Jenkins and Mike and Paul Bennett that were all going to be killed for selling their own drugs on the corner of 8th and Butler. And I think that's probably what this was. Also, having it be that this is the first time that Angel is mentioned in the narrative of this at all. I think he was trying to equally incriminate June and Spanky in the conspiracy for this murder as well. Yeah, maybe by 
by bringing in other people. He's tr- trying to minimize the, the death of Sean. And if there's that many people selling drugs on the corner of 8th and Butler, it sounds like it was a crowded block. And so, yeah, Spanky getting mentioned for the first time. So this is August of 89. Yes. Which would have been it's about a year after the arrest for the Michael Gore murder. So he, he, he went to jail for Michael Gore. He got out. And that's when all the stuff with Itchy happened and this the idea of revenge against Spanky. So that's that's how he gets thrown into the mix. Then we have the grand jury testimony in October of 1989. He again discusses his drug criminal behavior, traveling back and forth to New York, selling drugs, being in charge of counting money and whatnot. He talks about the actual murder and the logistics of how it happened. He talks about Spanky was the one that shot Sean. He talks about the three of them meeting and discussing all of this. He talks about... The heat got to be too much from the murder of Michael Gore, that he could no longer be a courier. Just a lot of incidental things were were included into this grand jury testimony. And at the very end, he talks about the reason why he decided to cooperate with the police in, in 1989. He says that he cooperated because he was afraid of a jury returning with a first-degree murder verdict that could carry the death sentence, and that he was also helping the feds to break the New York connection. I think trying to to show that he had kind of turned a new leaf or was wanting to clear his conscience or something from all of the stuff that he had done from 1985 to 19... We later hear till really 1989 when he gets arrested for the final time. Then we have the preliminary hearing. He discusses his, his roles in the Sean Nelson and Michael Gore's death. King indicates that the plea agreement was no less than 30 years no more than 60 years with the judge making the final decision, which we now know was not an accurate time. It's not even the same time that King mentions at trial, which we'll get to next. He talks about there being two sides to transporting drugs. First, it could be that romance would do anything that June would ask him to do, transport material to people on the street, being in charge of the corner, counting money, collecting money. And also that he went to New York City for June with cash and brought back drugs. It's interesting that he adds this second part of the the courier thing. It could be something that he just didn't get into in the statements, but it does seem convenient to now be adding to all of this. One thing that I did notice going through all the statements and the testimony is that the price of everything shifts basically in every statement like i don't know if he doesn't remember i don't know if he says the number that he thinks is is best in each statement and can't remember the lie i'm not sure yeah um, i mean it could have been over the course of the two years that he was making that trip that you know drug prices would have fluctuated up and down and and he's he's recalling different points in time but it's still it's really inconsistent yeah and it's it's interesting too really the only reason why i brought it up is because of the inconsistency and also because he was never really called out on any inconsistencies by defense attorneys when he was cross-examined it's not that that point in and of itself would necessarily exonerate june or spanky but it goes to the general credibility of romance. I mean, it's already very shaky that he's basically saying, I was afraid of the verdict I could possibly get. And this is when he conveniently comes forward with June and Spanky for being responsible for this. That's already just super shady in and of itself, but he also can't keep his story straight at all. 
the defense lawyers were they were overmatched. I mean, I, I don't I don't know that it's just that Roger King was better than them. I just don't think they were all that great. I think that it's difficult to create a defense when you have a prosecutor like Roger King, who is not trying to get to the heart of any matter. He would make up stories. He would withhold evidence, all of those kind of things. So I think that complicates things. But also, I do agree that the defense attorneys were a little inept or a lot inept when cross-examining romance because there were so many inconsistencies. It really could have benefited June and Spanky for any of these things. Yeah, I mean, I guess if you're going against someone like King, it's it's hard to prepare if you don't know what to prepare for. That's exactly my point. Yeah. that It's really hard to play defense when you don't know... You don't know what, what the offense is. <laughs> right, right. And you don't know until you get into court. I mean, that's really, really remarkable. I don't know. It's just disappointing. Ineffective assistance of counsel is a very difficult claim to substantiate in court because you have judges that are making those decisions who want to give the attorneys the benefit of the doubt that, you know, the story was just bad or these people are guilty. They don't want to call out one of their own sometimes for the things they've done wrong. I worked on another case where the defense attorney was drunk and and multiple people could smell alcohol on him throughout the entirety of the trial and ineffective assistance of counsel was they weren't granted any appeal or, or anything based on that motion. It's it's really remarkable when you see the way that all of this goes down. So also during the preliminary hearing, when Romance is being cross-examined, Romance testifies that Tito was the person who ran the Blue Tape gang. Now, Tito was the uncle of Spanky, and he had passed Ethan Butler on to his nephew in 1986. But Romance testified that Tito was the one who ran the blue tape and Ethan Butler. Tito would have ultimate control over any drugs that came into Ethan Butler, and anyone who had contact with drugs at Ethan Butler would be working only for Tito, including Romance. That's remarkable. Yeah. Um, it's something brought up by the defense attorney, of course. But it's not objected to in any way. It's not not anything else. What I was going to say, so in regards to the to the Tito thing, just like you know, we we discussed the the fluctuating drug costs over the years. Romance could be conflating who was in charge at what time. Romance started his work with the Blue Tape Gang while Tito was in full control. He allegedly, you know, we find out later, he handed. He handed it over in 86. Romance's time with the blue tape sort of overlapped those that whole era. So he's, when he started, Tito was in charge, and then Tito handed it off to, to Spanky, and Romance continued to work for him. So maybe he's conflating something there? That could be. I think it, sh- it goes to show how weak of a witness Romance is, that he throws all of this stuff in there, and... It doesn't really make a lot of sense when you're when you're comparing it to the statements. I mean, I don't think he mentions Tito at all in other statements, except to say that Tito had passed that block on to his nephew in 1986. Now we're hearing for the first time in anything that we've read that Tito was the person who ran it. He would have ultimate control and that anyone working at Ethan Butler would only be working for Tito. I just find that incredible that they didn't really go and run with that. He also goes on in the preliminary hearing to talk about the van that the murder was supposed to have occurred in. 
He's asked multiple questions about where Sean was positioned when he was shot. Uh, we talked about this a little bit before that, you know, romance can literally not give a straight answer. He actually confuses me more when by his answer based on what the the question was. It, it's, it's almost like a comedy act or something, like the way that they go back and forth. It's like a, a cartoon or something, but it's it's really kind of disheartening about all of that. Yeah, he, um, he, he changes everything up when talking about the van, right? It's not just Sean's alleged position, but it's about who was where. He also, he talks about how he was holding the doors open of the van in the preliminary hearing. In the trial testimony, he talks about how he didn't have to hold the van doors open after they were open because they couldn't swing back and close. They were the kind that when you pulled open, you kind of reached a point where it was just open until you pulled it back to close it. And it's just, again, it's not a huge thing that's going to exonerate June and Spanky, but it shows that he can't even keep his own story straight about what was going on at the time, where he was, where the other players were. It's concerning. Yeah, and I, I couldn't keep straight whether... It seemed like he went back and forth. He talked about the back door of the van, and right. then it was the side door of the van. Like, it just, it didn't, or maybe he said back door, but then when they talked about Sean getting dragged out, he was held out the side door. So it was just, it was all kinds of, of things that just didn't jive. I think if it had been a better lawyer, I think that they could have broken down each specific fact. Now, it probably would have been super annoying for the jury, <laughs> but I think the jury would have had a better idea of what romance was talking about. You and I have read this. We've talked about this. We can't even Still figure out what it. the hell he's talking about. You know, they'll say, was he facing the back or was he facing the side? And he'll say, I, I, he was facing the trees. Yeah. Well, <laughs> let's start over with where the trees were then, I guess. I mean, it's it's just, it's a joke. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure um, the, the jury had to have been confused by all this as it was happening because like I said we've read it several times and we're still discussing or or arguing about what happened and how and how it went just based on on the totality of the statements it's it's difficult for me to understand why that wasn't further dissected and why that wasn't discussed I mean they could have entered the statements into into evidence in court and discuss that. I mean, you would have been going back clear to the first one where he says he doesn't know anything about the murder at all. In the trial testimony, there are a couple of things that I want to talk about. It's the first time that that romance talks about Sean being involved in drug activity with blue tape. He talks about how at one time Sean worked under romance which I think he had denied all that time before. Before that, he had portrayed that they had a big brother, little brother kind of relationship. Um, I think that he he said base, he said before that Sean had sold drugs and things like that, and he was in trouble for selling his own drugs on the street. But then he denies it in some states. Here he comes back to say that this was all about selling his own product on 8th and Butler that Sean was slowing up the profits and the three men had decided that Sean would be hit. You know, he talks about being complicit. He pleads guilty to the conspiracy, but he was there and he opened the doors and all these things. And then to turn around and say, oh, but but he's less culpable only because he's coming forward with information to incriminate two other people. Yeah, I, I think 
what's what's kind of fascinating here is yeah this is the first time that he says that sean was working for him in blue tape you go back to 87 to the eyewitnesses most of the eyewitness testimony they mentioned that sean was working for romance that they were selling drugs together yeah it seemed like it was it was a well-known fact well, and also remember that they also, most of those witnesses talked about him having a bigger deal, Romance and Sean having a bigger deal, and that's what they were meeting about that night. He, we, he talked, well, most of the witness statements that were there that night talked about Sean was putting together a larger amount of money than maybe what he normally dealt with. And then we also know that after the fact, Sean was found with less than $100 on him. If a person is murdered, during the commission of an underlying felony, such as a robbery, and then this person's murdered, that's capital murder. That's a much more serious charge. Clearly, he took the money because the money wasn't there. I mean, we know from from the statement with Peruto that, you know, he was there, it was an accident, it happened in the car, there's blood in the car, go test the car. So again, during the trial testimony, they talk about what happened when Romance was bailed out for the Michael Gore murder. It's really ironic to me that Spanky and Tito bailed Romance out from the Michael Gore murder charge and picked him up at the prison, at the jail where he was being held, and also that June retained a lawyer for the Michael Gore charges. June paid $5,000 for this lawyer. Romance, I think, threw in an additional $1,400 when he was out. Romance did not show up for future court dates, and he ran, so the bail was forfeited. After this, his lawyers contacted by the DA's office, and Romance indicated that he would like to come forward with some things he knew and plead guilty to the crimes he committed. In this testimony, this is where the amount of time that Romance would get at this time, it was no less than 20 years, no more than 40 years, and before it had been 30 and 60. And in return for the plea, he agreed to come forward with things that he'd done in his past. Do we know how many years romance did? So if, he went, in, so. if he went in in 89, the last letters we have are 2009, so that's 20 years. Right. Do, is, right. do, we, do we think that's, that's when he got out? I would say so. I mean, it's just remarkable that he, he literally did the least amount of time possible for his involvement in two murders. It's insane to me that, okay, yeah, he, he got them to believe that he was not complicit in, in Sean's murder. They made that a third-degree charge. The Michael Gore charge, in broad daylight, he walked up to him, premeditated, shot him in the head. How do you let that slide to a third-degree murder? The only explanation for it is that King had it in so bad for June and Spanky that he was willing to, to give up on this. Romance was worried about it getting the death sentence, and he should have. He should right. have for premeditated murder in, in broad daylight. But I think that it was in the preliminary hearing testimony. Romance has shown a book about crime fighting in Philadelphia, and in this book, June and Spanky are in the book as being drug dealers, which, of course, we know they were. And I think it goes to show how strongly King felt about them and wanting to get them at any cost, obviously by using romance as the only witness against them. It's shocking to me that no jurors really picked up on a lot of this stuff. The last thing that I, I really want to make a point of during the trial testimony that was something that had never been discussed before, romance testified that in August of 87, so about a month before the murder, that 
Sean and Spanky got into an argument on the corner and the angel threw a bottle at him and Sean ran. Um, Romance says that angel told him that Sean had a big mouth. His heart was too big and he was tired of it. And that's the first time we've heard anything about any incident like that. And I think it goes to show that the personal animus between well, the animus that Romance had for Spanky is what is driving a lot of this stuff. I think June got caught up in it because he wanted Spanky so much. And it's remarkable because even after he'd gotten arrested for Michael Gore's murder, they're picking him up from jail. They're bailing him out. They're helping him get a, a lawyer. He only spent 72 days in jail after he was arrested for Michael Gore. That is shocking to me. But all of this is not, you know, it's either... The way that it's explained to the jury is kind of downplayed the importance of it or it's not discussed at all. And I think, again, that goes that's on both of them. You know, it shows that King doesn't really care about accuracy and facts and also that the defense attorneys were terrible in not putting some of these pieces together. Yeah, the animosity from romance towards Spanky. But as we as we learned in last week's episode, romance did forgive Spanky ultimately. He did. What a good guy. Are there any other statements that you want to discuss before we before we close this thing out? I think those are the big significant facts that our, our listeners should hear. I think between the letters that we discussed and the testimony, I mean, it shows that his story is all over the place. He can't be consistent. I don't think he remembers some of his lies. And just overall, he's not a credible witness in any way. Yeah, he, he's he was all over the place. Well, I mean, I guess that wraps up... Uh, episode six and for the most part i guess this is this is going to be the end of the story portion of this Uh, over the next couple of weeks we do plan to bring you conversations directly from both june and spanky Uh, we'll check on them see how they're doing how they're faring through this whole thing discuss maybe their hopes and and dreams for when they're released when yep and we've already promised to be in the parking lot when they get released so Hopefully we can get the lawyer to come on and let us know how things are are progressing on the case, where things stand right now, and if there's anything that we as a community can do to help move things along. Um, No new calls to action this week, right? Maybe if listeners could just share the podcast with one friend or family member, that would be helpful in continuing to get their story out there. Yeah, absolutely. All right. That's it. That's the episode. Thanks for listening. Bye. The Injustice Podcast is brought to you in association with Death by Incarceration. Thank you to Crawlspace Media. Sound design, audio post-production, Jason Usry. Special thanks for original music to Bernaldo Rivaldi. Check out all his great stuff on iTunes and Spotify, Bandcamp, wherever you get your music. Please support independent artists. Right now is a, a real tough time for creatives. Go to InjusticePod.com for more information, including what are the great podcasts we are listening to. You can also find information to contact the hosts directly there. General inquiries can go to info at InjusticePod.com. Thank you for listening. This has been an Injustice Production.